You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. Tonight we're continuing our Summer of 86 retrospective series with James Cameron's Aliens. Our dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. The middle children of history, man. No purpose in place. We have no great war. No great depression. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian. With me tonight, Jeremy Benson. Yo. And Paul Williams. What's up? All right. So we're talking 1986 Aliens, continuing our Summer of 86 retrospective series here. When's the first time you guys saw Aliens? I remember watching it on VHS. It seems like I saw it probably Definitely. sometime in the 80s. I yeah. remember me and my dad sat down to watch it one night on TV. I mean, on VHS, we rented it. I can tell you that I saw it in on March 9th, 1991, uh, sometime around 2 p.m. in the you. afternoon. And that was, on, that was a Sunday, I'm pretty sure. What format? Yeah, it was on VHS. Okay. It was on VHS. So none of, us, none of us went to the theater to see it. Oh, no, man. I, when this came out, I was four. So yeah, no. I forget how old, much older I am than you. Yeah, a little, little bit, a little bit of an age difference here, man. But uh, I mean, this was an important gift, man. This, this, this VHS tape my mom gave me for my birthday. This is the film that made me want to be uh, a filmmaker. This is the one because I got so wrapped up in the special effects and trying to figure out how this film was made. Like all, all almost every other film I'd seen up until this point, I could pretty much, if I'd watched it enough, I could figure out how it was made, roughly. Just by watching it enough. Aliens, man, I couldn't figure it out. So much of this movie, I could not figure out how they did the facehuggers. I became obsessed with the special effects. The, uh, you know, what you get excited about in film, right? The the magic. You just sent me on a very bizarre train of thought, but I'm going to follow it because it ends with some interesting trivia. The movie that made me, like, really start wanting to be a filmmaker was Jaws. Okay? Yeah. Directed by Master Spielberg. The somebody counted through all the Academy speeches, like throughout all the years, the three thousand whatever speeches. Steven Spielberg is thanked more time than God. Wow, more times than God. Yep. Well, there you go. So in Hollywood, <laughs> I got into the speaking. Of, this brings us back to Aliens. I get into the strangest argument with a friend of mine the other day. That Spielberg and James Cameron are not good directors. That's insane. What? Yeah, that was, well, that's that was my point. Was that's insane? You're an idiot. I'm sorry. If you say something that's stupid, you're just that's these these are guys that have gone out and just made some of the most incredible pieces of film ever, dude. Right? Not only that, but some of the most influential movies that have ever been made too. Yeah, not I to mean, mention entertaining. I mean, 
people will actually use the terms like, oh, that's Spielberg style or that's Cameron style. I Yeah, I don't. You know who else they threw in this list? Scorsese. Wait, you're going to throw in Scorsese, Spielberg, and Cameron? The person I was arguing with said that Spielberg, Scorsese, and Cameron are overrated. Overrated? Wow. Yeah, that's a that's kind of a bold statement. His argument with Cameron was that since Aliens, he hasn't liked any of Cameron's movies. And since No Taste. Uh Spielberg stopped making movies like Jurassic Park, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that he hasn't liked any of his movies. And it's Spielberg he, he really didn't like because Spielberg can't get dark. What oh. do you mean he can't get dark? Have you not seen Schindler's List, Munich? It just puts me in such a great mood. Uh, you know, it's not. That's not funny, buddy. Uh, I think that's insane. Like uh, James Cameron is. Uh, I guess we've never even talked about James Cameron on this podcast. I think James Cameron is probably one of the greatest living directors that we have. I, I think mean, the three names I just mentioned one, are all I mean, three. Yeah, I mean James Cameron holds the three highest grossing films of all time to date. So, well, the two: Titanic yeah. and Avatar. I'm sorry. So, I mean, the proof is kind of in the pudding on that one. I mean, you know, you can, you can talk some shit when you can say, hey, two of my movies have made more money than any other movie ever made in the world. No, so you, you can talk yeah. shit when you can say two of my movies have made more money than some countries. Yeah, yeah no shit. And everybody has always Cameron. been like, James Cameron's going to ruin Hollywood with his big budgets and all this expensive stuff <clears> he has. Yeah, it proves him wrong every time. James Cameron, I respect him so much. And I, I know everybody has problems. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people have problems with his uh, screenwriting and his scripts and his dialogue. Why is that? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess everybody was okay with it until Titanic came out. And then when Titanic came out, uh, everybody criticized the script in Titanic. Everybody criticized the script for Avatar. I don't feel like so much of his earlier work. I don't hear that many people complain about Terminator or Aliens or, I mean, even Terminator 2 or The Abyss. Titanic and Avatar are not my two favorite James Cameron films, but I don't have a problem with the script. Titanic is like a 1950s homage type movie, and back then they had corny dialogue. I mean, let's face it. I mean, it's a love story, man. How are you going to make a love story that some of the dialogue is not going to make you want to vomit just a little bit? Even though Titanic is probably personally my least favorite James Cameron movie, I still enjoy a lot of the set pieces in that movie. I mean... I mean, guys, look at what we're saying here. I mean, and I did fall in love with Kate Winslet in that movie. We're, we're, we're saying our, our least favorite film of James Cameron it won, like, fucking eight or 11 Oscars. Like, how many Oscars did that movie win? Like, I don't like, know. all of them? Yeah, like, everything but the acting categories. They just went, like, this year it all goes to this guy. It was like the shortest show ever. Yeah. <laughs> Leo, he was standing over the side going, where's mine? Like, you're, you don't get one, pretty boy. You have to go fight a bear. It's a James Cameron movie. We don't give anything <laughs> to the actors, okay? We right. just appreciate Winslet. it. did get a nomination. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I have a problem with any movie where my ass and the rest of me falls asleep while watching it in the movie theater. And, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to what I, I am not the yeah. biggest Titanic fan, but when I went to see it, I was not bored. Yeah, I just, man, there's just Paul so much asleep, spectacle. There's, man, I don't, Paul, how did you fall asleep, dude? I and mean, there's just, it's so I, much Like I said, I, I completely fell in love with Kate Winslet in that movie. Yeah. Like, to yeah. me, in, her in that movie is like the most beautiful woman ever. I kind of had a thing for Sigourney Weaver after I saw this movie. 
fucking Sigourney's attitude, man. Can you name an action heroine in a film before Ripley that was kick-ass and independent? Truly independent. Not right off the top of my head, no. Not unless you go into, like, the horror genre. Well, even then, like... I mean, those are more survivor girls, not yeah. heroines, yeah. Yeah, they're, like, they're surviving. Well, most like, of Ripley them take screaming charge. half the time, anyway. Now, see, if you were to put, if you were to put Ripley against Freddy or Jason, yeah, they would have probably been scared of her. You get what I saying. don't know, but then Freddy could always come back as an alien and really freak her out. And, I don't know, at the front of this movie, she was, pretty, <laughs> she was pretty scared. Mm, that's true. She was having the nightmares and... You know, it's like she she's kind of suffering from PTSD, you know. Oh, yeah. No, like, I think that's the exact point. Yeah, yeah, she definitely had alien that's shell exactly shock. Which I'm bringing that term shock. back, by the way, shell shock. I'm going to use it as much as I can. We'll call it colonial alien shell shock. Yeah. I want to touch on that it is a sequel to Alien. It is a sequel to Alien. And we were talking about this the other day when we were watching it. It's a really good sequel. And what I mean by that is, like, you had a movie... There was no story planned to keep going. The studio said, hey, we're going to make another one of these. Pick up the story from where we left off. Cameron came in, wrote a script. It picks up the story. It's a little bit different vibe. It's definitely a sequel to the first one. Everything now is a continuation. You're planning a franchise from the beginning. Yeah, and the movies are coming out like... The ne- the next one's already started shooting before the right. this, the first one's released. And- You're getting information about what's going to happen in the next one, and it's like I miss that idea of going into a sequel and going, wonder what they're gonna do. Like I totally miss that feeling of going in. Like you've seen Alien and you know what happened, and now you're gonna watch Part Two, <laughs> and you have no idea how they're gonna continue it. Did you see this before Alien? No, no, I saw Alien first. Paul, which one did you see first? I think also, um, I actually saw Aliens first. I didn't see Alien until later on. Yeah, um, me too. But the thing I really liked about Aliens versus Alien was, was you know, when you have Alien, like Alien is basically a horror movie that takes place in outer space. And Aliens is, you know, they step away a little bit from that, the horror element that Alien had. Um, well, it morphs I, I do in like, the movie. Yeah. As Sigourney Weaver's character morphs from being afraid yeah. of the aliens, like, yeah. he morphed the tone. No, I, I do know what you're saying. Yeah. Because, like, it, it starts out, she's having bad dreams, she's dreading going, and then it's the whole suspense going into the tunnel. It's very much still shot and presented like, okay, this is going to be scary. But yes. then once she gets involved with the action, you know, we're involved with the action. Like with the first one, she's driven to save that cat, you know, and Jonesy. you almost see the same the same play out in Aliens where it's, you know, within this movie, it's Newt. You know, Newt is more important than she is. It's like Jonesy, the cat, was more important than her own life was because she risked, she risked her life to go back and save the cat when she didn't have to. Oh, man, you can't you can't go back in that life support boat all by yourself, dude, without a little... You know, that's something to snuggle. You got nothing to snuggle on. I do I do like how they find her that's in the beginning of Aliens, and she's got the cat in there with her. Right. I always thought that was such a nice touch, man. Let's go into uh, Special Edition versus the 86 uh, theatrical cut. Uh, which, which one do you guys prefer more? Special Edition, myself. Why is that? You know, there are other scenes that are added to it, like the... Um, 
the auto turrets, the scenes where you get a little background on Newt, it actually shows you what happens to Newt's parents and her brother. You kind of get to see the colony, stuff like that. I mean, I, I thought all of that was really, really interesting stuff that was actually taken out of the, the theatrical version. And now when I watch the theatrical version, it's like it just seems really short to me. Yeah, it's either cut. Both cuts are over two hours long. Um, the special edition is uh, over two and a half hours long. Neither version, I would say, feels short. I mean, it's definitely a fast movie. Um, I do have some problems with the pacing in the special edition just a little bit. But there are things that I do like about it. Like, I do like the the fact that Ripley had a daughter. little trivia, the picture you see of Ripley's daughter is Sigourney Weaver's mother. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah, I didn't know that. There you go. Yep. Look at that. So... Yeah, I, I think that scene's great. It adds a lot to her character. It gives her character a reason to go back and do something um, toward the end of the movie. <laughs> but well, I will say that is a little bit of a depressing scene because it's like never even got to watch her daughter grow up or anything like that. Now her daughter's dead and she's been floating around and, and frozen as an ice cube in space for the last what, 57 years. So that kind of is a little bit of a that, is, that kind of is a little bit of a depressing scene. It's depressing, but is it needed? Like I never, I didn't need that scene when I watched the the, the original cut. Like I, I, I didn't know I was missing me, that scene. You to know? me, it's always sort of felt like, you know, how when you read a novel and then you watch the movie and it's pretty close adaptation, but they've yeah. left out certain things. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, they did a really good job. This is a really good movie. And you know that she's sad because she had a daughter, but it didn't. It didn't need to be in the movie. I like. I mean, I like both versions. I've seen the theatrical version more. I haven't seen. Yeah, the, me too. The special edition in forever. But I don't like the Newt scene. I have a problem with that. That just destroys all the suspense and tension that the movie is working so hard to build. You don't know how many aliens there are. You don't. You don't know any of this information out for sure. It is a sequel. Things are different. The world's different. 57 years have passed. Once you see Newt go out there with her, her, her folks and you see that it is a facehugger and it's the derelict ship from the first Alien movie, I don't know. It just it makes it kind of boring then because it's just like I'm just waiting to get to an alien. Whereas in the theatrical cut, I'm intrigued the entire time. Yeah, I can see that too. I started to say though, one of my favorite scenes that were cut out is the is the auto turret scene. Like, like that, I really wish they hadn't cut that scene out because I, I really, really, really like that scene a lot. Now, I just thought my the memory, whole idea of having like where they set the uh, they set the guns up. It's four guns that they set up, and the aliens are just coming in. I mean, you can just sit there and watch these counters of the ammo just continuously drop. What kind of is cool about that scene is it makes it a bit suspenseful because it's like you know these are going to run out, and once they run out, you're like, oh man, they're fucked. So let me ask you guys this, because as a kid, like, comparing between aliens and alien, hands down, aliens. But as I got older, and I rewatched Alien as an adult, I was like, whoa, like, I have a full new respect for this movie now. So now I kind of hold them equally in different kind of categories. Aliens will always be the better Yeah, I could definitely see that. I would say the atmosphere and the lighting in Alien is just amazing. Like, you can't get better than that. I just, I mean, they just Aliens come across, has got like, everything else, though, for me. This goes back to what I was talking about. Like, it's a really cool sequel because it, like, takes that universe and changes and expands it. It doesn't change it, but you want to change tone and stuff. But when you watch just, like, this movie and you're looking at the story, you're looking at the pacing, you're looking at the lighting and the atmosphere, and then you look at Cameron's, 
Like they're on they're almost completely different kind of takes on it. Yeah. Like, I just like both of the versions so much. Like I can't I, honestly for myself, I can't say which one I actually like better. Because while I'm watching Aliens, I, mean, from, I like Aliens better. But while I'm watching Alien, I like Alien better. I guess I like Alien because I'm a I'm a big horror fan, and I like Aliens because it's just more of a a, a rough and tumble kick-ass sci-fi action movie. Well, you can definitely tell Cameron was writing Rambo and Aliens at the same time. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, he was. Uh, I was at Schwarzenegger had a uh, six. Six to nine months off because Schwarzenegger had to go make uh, Conan 2. While he was yeah. waiting to make Terminator, he uh, was writing Rambo First Blood Part 2 in the day and uh, Aliens at night. Multitasking. What, what a what, what two great movies just to be writing at the same time, dude. Just like action classics of the 80s. Oh, yeah, and he sucks. <laughs> Although I will say Aliens is a far better film than Rambo First Blood Part 2. But, uh, you know, hey. I don't think anybody on the planet would disagree with that. But I, I've always responded to Aliens more than well, Aliens. See, my dad is the same way. He's you know? a huge sci-fi fan. Yeah. He likes horror films, but sci-fi is his thing. When we watch, I mean, I remember watching it with him. He's like, oh, that's so much. He was got he got excited. Like, that's so much better than the first one. I mean, we all know the third one is the best, but. I like the third one a lot. It was a joke. <laughs> I know. You, you don't, so you don't, you don't like the third one? It's all right. Yeah, I, th- I like it a lot. I, I think thought it's underappreciated. what Fincher did with what he had was. That poor man. He should be commended for going through that. <laughs> the the story, um, it's like why I like The Dark Knight over Batman Begins. It's the main character is put through more of a test, and we actually have a main character. If I have a one complaint story-wise with Alien is that it's a complete exercise in horror, and it's almost n- completely devoid of, like, any kind of character or character building. Like they put moments in Alien where they can they kind of shoot the shit and talk back to each other, but there's no there's no growth. There's no it's just survival. I don't know if I agree with that, but I'd have to rewatch it to well, make Like I said, argument. dude, you're just watching you're watching mm-hmm. a slasher movie that takes place with an alien in outer space instead of in a camp somewhere with but, a mass yeah. maniac. Although I mean if I if I remember correctly, like because Ripley wasn't even the main character in in Alien until after Dallas dies, Tom Skerritt's yep. character. But she sort of she grows as a character, and she kind of takes that mantle as main character you to be kinda, a survival girl. Yeah, you do kind of see Ripley come into her own too, as well in Alien. I mean, and it's always easier to return to a character that's already been established. We know what she's been through. We can say, okay, now she has shell shock and. Notice how I worked in shell shock instead of PTSD. <laughs> um, and then, you know, carry that story on instead of introducing someone you don't know. Well, hey, uh, I believe it says on the behind the scenes that um, Fox did not want to pay Sigourney Weaver, which she actually wanted to come back to do um, well, yeah, it's cause for it... aliens. Well, they were idiots. They started writing the script without ever checking with the lead fucking actress if she wanted to, even if she wanted to do it. And by this point, she had done Ghostbusters. Talk about putting your cart before your horse. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I think Ghost, yeah, Ghostbusters had definitely come out by this point, yeah. Because that came out in 84, and uh, they didn't start shooting this until uh, 85. 
Let me see. This Hicks, is a- tell the story you just told me about. Oh, yeah, I did see that, man. Also I his Michael Bean. Yeah, Michael Bean. But, man, I've been trying to find out forever who the original Hicks was because Michael Bean's character only got yeah, – like, originally, the guy that was going to play Hicks is James uh, Rimoir from uh, – the guy that plays Dexter's dad in Dexter. He's in the Warriors. Anyway, uh, I, I found an article finally with this guy, and he's come out and started talking about this. And there's some photos that have leaked online where you can actually see – uh, James Ramore in in the Hicks costume uh, apparently had a drug problem because we always heard that Cameron fired this first actor because of creative differences. The story you always hear, right? That's um, the that's the standard line of it's just creative differences. Yeah, you know, it's like a divorce that's yeah, unreconcilable. Was apparently, that he likes to drink and show up drunk on set. And no, no, he wasn't like that. No, no, he wasn't drunk. He he had he didn't have a, a drinking problem. He had a drug problem and got busted. Um, oh, with a pos- drug problem. Busted with uh, possession of uh, drugs on set. So he was let go and fired. And you know, I mean, hey, actors go through troubled things, and it obviously he's turned his life around now. So good for him. Can happen to anybody. But uh, you know, dude, is it kind of is is it terrible to say like I'm kind of glad Michael Bean got cast instead of him. Michael Bean's just got a little bit of well, heart and love, man, in his eyes, you know? And James Ramar just well, looks dude, like I, a I, bad guy. I always like Michael Bean's through. voice. Yeah, right. You know, Michael Bean was a was a complete badass in Terminator. Yeah, he was also the basis for for the uh, original illustration for Solid Snake and Metal Gear. That's how that's how amazing Michael Bean is. Now, do what now? What did you just say? Uh, Metal Gear, it's a video game. The original I thought you were saying yeah, he was like gear. the bass player for some like heavy metal. No, the ba- no, the bassist, the bassist. For no, that. Like he's the bassist for. Oh, I got you. I got like, you. What band is this? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, that dude slapping the bass, man. Uh, for the record, I don't know much about video games, so all those references just go way over my head. But yeah, no, uh, Michael B. He's he's gone on had a had a gr- pretty good career. I thought he was going to be like an A list. Yeah, I think I watched it. He's too much of a regular dude. But he's so awesome, though. I agree, but you know that A-lister kind of has that that certain charisma that kind of goes beyond regular dude. Man, I don't know. I just I I guess I liked him just so much as Hicks and and Reese that you know from Terminator and Aliens. Like just, who's the dude that man. played uh, uh, Stu Redman in The Stand? Uh, Gary Sinise, such a regular dude. Never gonna be that A-lister. Oh man, you, you what you are talking about, Lieutenant? Come on, Dan. Lieutenant, Lieutenant Dan. Dan. Come on, Lieutenant Dan. I love Dan him. He's legs. Like, one of my Lieutenant favorite actors. Dan. But there's two 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 people in that movie, and one of them is an A-lister, and one of them is not. Gary Sinise, and who's the who's the other person? Oh, man, Gary now? Sinise has done Tom a lot Hanks. of shit, man. I mean, Gary Sinise has done a lot. Oh, uh, he lot has. Of shit, he's, like, he's 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 done a Sinise lot of was stuff. In Snake Eyes. You're you're never gonna see that like. You see Tom Cruise in. You're never gonna see Gary Sinise in. Man, that's a shame because uh, Gary Sinise and Michael Bean are fucking fantastic actors. I know. I really they like are. Michael Bean. I agree. Uh, all right, we can go into Hudson now. The real star of this movie, Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton. <laughs> <laughs> We're in some real pretty shit now, movie. man. What the fuck are we gonna do now? Yeah, he's. What a, what I love do? it. That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? We're some real pretty shit now, man! You finished. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we gonna do now? What are we gonna do? 
Maybe we could build a fire, sing a couple of songs, huh? Why don't we try that? We better get back, because it'll be dark soon, and they mostly come at night. Mostly. I love the fact. I love the fact that he his character is like such a fucking badass and he's like ready to go kill some fucking aliens and he's all this and then when the shit really hits the fan he's like the biggest chicken shit out of the whole group. <laughs> oh man, he's got so many so many great so many great lines. Oh. Well, while we're talking about the Marines, um I thought it was interesting while I was reading the trivia on this movie. Cameron chose to shoot the scene when you first see the Marines all together. Shot that last so that they would actually have some camaraderie after having been together months of filming. Yeah, made him go through like a little boot camp too. Shows the genius yeah, of yeah, he, James Cameron. Like ex-special forces and retired special forces. Um, you know, people actually come in and for like a two or three week period actually train all of them together and do military drills and the actor that actually plays Apone, he um, Al he was actually in the military. Oh, dude, he is great on the behind the scenes. I could listen to that guy talk all day. Like, I don't even want to hear oh, him talking in character. Or anything. I just want to listen to the actual Al Matthews talk. Like, he's better than his character in the movie, dude. He's just like, yeah, these actors sometimes yeah, they, they, don't, they, just... they don't know any better, and they they're running around with their fingers on the trigger, and I can't have any of that now. <laughs> Every time I think about a uh, military guy being hired to be in a movie, I always think of Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's the Emery. Yeah, I think he's the shining example of the drill sergeant kind of character. The quintessential drill sergeant for movies. Well, he was, yeah. you know, he was brought in to be a technical advisor. technical advisor. That's the word I'm looking for. For some reason, my vocabulary is slipping out of my brain tonight. It's late, man. What are you gonna do? That Full Metal Jacket actually that came out after this, right? Because that came out in '87, right? Of course, uh, no one's Stanley Kubrick. Full Metal Jacket was probably in production two years before Aliens was, but five you know. years before. <laughs> Been in production <laughs> since he finished The Shining. Speaking of being in production, this movie was in production. Aliens was in production for ten months on a budget of eighteen million dollars. Um, this that's the crazy thing about science fiction. You don't always think about in sci-fi. You can't go out and build these sets. Uh, you can't. Well, I mean, you have to go out and build these sets because you, there's no place to shoot because it's fucking science fiction. It's the future. It's in this new setting, so you have to build everything. You have to build the guns, all the props, all the costumes, every piece of equipment that a character is using. It's not something you can just go buy at a store or go pick up, you know, wherever. It's everything has to be made, or you have to get futuristic, hard to find, non everyday household kind of objects. Yeah, I mean, I know some of the, some of the stuff in the movie were made like old helicopter engines, old um, train farriers, and I know Gail, um, what is her name, Gail and Gail and her. Uh, she even says like um, in the in the behind the scenes, she's like, you know, we made this mud movie on a budget of eighteen million. That's like a marketing budget for an independent film today. I wish. Not yeah, not a. <laughs> not well, a real that, that independent was, movie a, maybe like a fucking yeah, that's studio. definitely well no i'm serious that's definitely that's a i mean i mean like that was exactly the, that was the marketing budget for hostel was 19 million oh yeah hostel that's that's independent too well it was an independent film what that was picked up what, what get, well it was picked up but it was still an independent film uh, i don't well, i don't think that was picked up I think, didn't lionscape put the money up for that Mm-mm. raw nerve put the money up 
as far as I know. Oh, really? Yeah, I thought they. I thought he had a deal by that point. They, Up until here recently, time, when Lionsgate made a movie, it was still considered independent. <laughs> what? No, not since they done they got the Hunger Games. I said until here recently. Uh, I remember the first time we went to AFM. We were we went to the like the producers meeting, and one of the first things they were they were explaining is in the industry what is considered an independent film. And he said the the answer is simple, and it's going to baffle some of you guys because y'all are making movies for nothing. Um, an independent film is a film that is financed outside of the five major studios: Disney, Warner Brothers, Universal, Paramount, oh, Sony. Wait a minute, that, that I think that definition is too simple then, because what if you what? So that would mean every independent film, every foreign film ever made, would be independent. He nah. mentioned that. Yeah, well, that's not true, though. I mean, like, how can you say some of these Chinese movies are independents when they are, they're getting money from the government and these these Chinese studios? That Like, that I definition mean, it, it, doesn't hold water anymore. It, not anymore, but yeah. 10 years ago, that was what was considered to be an independent film. He made the point that since Lucas financed Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi, one of those two. The last is, two. That those are officially independent films. But they're not really independent movies. Not by today's definition. Well, no. I mean, if you get on a list and look up the highest grossing independence movie, it's like, it's still my my big fat Greek wedding. You know, it, Star Wars isn't on that list. Well, yeah, nobody's yeah. going to put it on because 20th Century Fox released it. But in the industry at that time, 10 years ago, that was the definition. Hmm. Well, I mean, with Lionsgate putting out like Hunger Games, I'm sure they don't consider... <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah, and then you had those that company that did Twilight and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean that's still Lionsgate. Summit's owned by Lionsgate. Well, they are now. Not not when they put out those Twilight movies, though. Oh, they weren't. No, they they bought them. I think they bought them right when they did the last two, the two parter mm-hmm. ones or what? Why do I know that? I don't know. Okay. Uh, you didn't say you watched them. You just were paying attention to the business end. No, no, no. I may have watched the first three. Um. <laughs> Oh God! I, I gave really? you an out. I gave you an out. I, I mean, have seen the first three Twilight movies. Yeah, I've seen them. Okay, so I do. I, yeah, I you better leave that shit one. in there because I made myself sound like a jackass about the fucking Star Wars. So you can lose some credit about Twilight. <laughs> the first one with the riff track is hilarious. The second Twilight movie is so bad, not even the riff track saved it. I dude, the second one is so that's that's one of the worst movies I. I've ever seen in my entire life. All right, guys, we got to get back on topic to aliens. Something I actually enjoy talking about. Uh, <laughs> you know, something I wanted to yeah, bring I'm glad up you about... about your little girly movies, dude. Now let's get back onto some manly shit. Well, we were watching Aliens the other night. The sets and the practical designs and the actual lighting on those sets just makes it look so much more real and in the environment. Uh, right when the military is fixing to go into that room. They they kind of knock the door the, down. Uh, and they the, they send in a little robot with the light, and then oh, it backs okay, out. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, that very, looks very so oh, real. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's you know, just that's laser and smoke, brother. Right. You like know? I miss that. And about, this is some nasty ass sparks coming like, from that. Basically, robot. other than like Nolan films, you just don't see that much real stuff on big movies. No, you don't. I well, this is this is one of the best practical. I think this is the best looking practical film ever of all time, hands down. Uh, outside of maybe like The Thing and Jurassic Park, or well, even when the dropship is, uh, it, it comes out of the the main bigger ship. I mean, 
that that even still holds up. Uh, I'm not. Today. I'm not really talking about so much about the the mat work and the blue screen stuff and things like that. I'm talking about all the things you're that they got. Talking about. I'm talking about the things they actually uh, shot. Yeah. Like actually there. Like uh, like all the aliens are. Those are all men in suits. Yeah. And they don't ever. They do a good job of hiding that. Well, it's because yeah. you, you you're limited to what you can do. And you figure out as the director and the cinematographer, how do we hide that and make it look good? It's not just my eyes because I grew up watching practical effects. My son, who grew up watching digital effects, has noticed that practical effects looks more real. They do. Uh, but, I mean, I still have some issues with, like, mad effects and stuff like that. Like, Oh, yeah. You know, like... There's you can... a shot in this movie when the ship's flying down and you're like... Yeah. yeah. You know, and... It... I like the way model ship looks better than C- 90 CGI looks, but in terms of how stuff is composited, I really don't care. To me, I think it ages about the same, whether it's CGI or or you have a, a, a mat that was done with a chemical blue screen versus a, a CGI where it was done in a computer. And I, I still don't think we've gotten it 100% perfect, but goddamn, dude, those apes in Planet of the Apes, those look fucking fantastic now. Yeah. Well, I think I think the shit looks amazing. Like when they go in down where where the aliens have their nest, you know, below the cooling tanks and shit. I think all of that looks absolutely amazing too, as well. Like just the the set designs and you know how they turn this this old nuclear refinery into this alien nest. I mean, to me, well, that's, like even- that's all just it's amazing. Well, I mean, well, you, you're talking about aliens, like. Things that I learned in Aliens, those are the same techniques that we brought to Girl in Woods, only with the difference being is instead of using a chemical process on a film, we're using a digital process. Right. That's the only difference here. We're still recording images the exact same way. We're still doing everything the same way that you would do for old school practical effects. We're just taking them the digital route because everything's digital now. Like the minute you shoot something, it's digital. Like, even if you shoot it on film, it's going to get scanned into a fucking computer every frame you shot. When you can actually light something and shoot it, it looks better. The yeah. digital effects should be there to enhance that. great example would be the matte lines that you were complaining about. Man, I hate matte lines, dude. I fucking hate them. When they went in and cleaned them up in Star Wars, it looks great. They need to go back and reclaim. <laughs> Dude, even the ones in 97, I still see the mat lines. It drives me insane. Star Wars, please come out with a mat line free copy, please. Oh, all the only the original version Star Wars fans are about to email you. Oh, dude. No, fuck that, man. I, you know what? All those people that are like, yo, I want the original version of Star Wars. I bet they haven't watched the original version of Star Wars in a <laughs> long time. Like, dude, there's some parts where you can't even see the fucking ships, man. Like, get out of me here. Like, that's what you want? You want those little dots to go across the screen, or do you want to see the ship? I want to see the ship, man. Think about how much smoother aliens would look if somebody went in and digitally cr- fixed that flying mat shot. Yeah, get the drop shit fixed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would be okay with that. I still get my sets that people are in, and light and smoke, and then you get cool ships. Well, we we gotta. You're talking about these sets. We gotta give massive credit, man, to Peter Lamont, the production designer for Aliens. Uh, we've talked about him before. He is the Bond production designer. 
You did everything from For Your Eyes Only to, I think, uh, Casino Royale. He was a production designer for those. Uh, and, of course, you know this was shot in England in Pinewood Studios. We love Pinewood. This is where Star Wars was shot. This is where every Bond movie has been shot. That was a that was quite a bit of a cultural difference between um, the American cast and uh, the British. Not only was there a cultural difference, but there was issues with tea time, and you know, all, all a lot of the British you know, people who worked on this film were huge fans of Ridley Scott. You know, huge fans of Ridley Scott. So because Ridley Scott's they British. almost had like. Yeah, they almost had like this this dislike for James Cameron, who is not immediately, who is Canadian. Yeah, but we're not going to hold that against Mr. Cameron. (laughs) No, we like Canadians. Yeah, you know this this movie also had two separate DPs on it too, as well. No, 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 no. It didn't have two separate DPs. It had one DP, and the first one got fired. Uh, the first cinematographer that had clashes with uh, James Cameron was uh, Dick Bush. I'm not making that name up. Yep. Um, are, that, you, are you serious? Yeah, his name was Dick Bush. Yes. I'm not. I'm not even. I'm not playing. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. Get. Go ahead. Laugh. Go ahead. Get out of your system. I laughed when get I heard your it. Too. <laughs> We're five here. Hmm. Um, that that makes it on my top five list of bad names. Yeah. Right. I know. That's what I was like. Yes, it will but, never be asshole Rimmer, but oh, oh, but God. Dick. I mean, I think the big problem with Dick Bush was with the fact that, one, he said he couldn't make the schedule. And two, you know, Cameron told him specifically the way he wanted an area shot. He wanted it to look like headlamps. You know, all you could see was the headlamps that the the soldiers had on. And apparently Dick Bush decided, hey, I'm just going to light it the way I want to light it. You know, and he lit the way he wanted to light it, and apparently it was like all super bright. And- let's give a little. Uh, let's give. Let's back up here because this brings up a very interesting point here. Uh, the cinematographer and director relationship. Now, eighty six. This is actually a, a moment where things started to shift. Where before, uh, I'd say, outside of a couple exceptions with uh, directors and cinematographers. Cinematographers kind of lit movies however the fuck they wanted, mostly because directors came from studio systems and they didn't know how to fucking do it. Yeah, yeah, the old studio system was director directs the actors, cinematographer lights and shoots the movie. And then you had like that 70s independent, yeah, 60s, 70s independent renaissance where you had directors that were auteurs that started having say-so in how they wanted it to look. Now, because shooting See, for film is a lot harder than shooting digitally. Like you shoot film, you you don't know exactly what you're getting. Like you can have a set and you can walk out onto a set in real life, and the set will have 50 lights on it. It'll look like it's lit for a baseball game. You know the example I always give people. But is, then when you see it on film, it looks dark. Yeah, you can on the making of Lost World Jurassic Part Two, they show you a shot of the. The camper that's hanging over the... Oh, yeah, at night in the rain. And it's bright as shit. And then the movie, it's all dark. That's always the what I point people to. But There's another story I remember watching. I don't remember what movie it is, but it was one of those directors in the 70s that, like Scorsese and them, that were you know, coming up at that time, talking about he had an argument with his DP, and his DP was just 
saying, yeah, this is what we're, we're, we're doing that, and then lit it the way he wanted to, and they ended up firing the guy. Yeah, that's how you get fired, man. You know? I mean, you gotta do your job. And I can't remember who it was and what movie it was. I wish I could. Where someone says in the behind scenes for Aliens that, that you basically are not gonna pull the wool over James Cameron's eyes. Like, apparently he has studied almost every aspect of film, so... You know, it's like, yeah, you're not gonna pull the wool over this guy. It's just like the one guy with the gloves and the and the special effects. He's like, oh, if you're not gonna do it, I'll do it. You know. You know, James Cameron is known for being tough to work with. Uh, he's a little bit perfectionist, but I mean, he got his start doing B crap for uh, Roger Corman. You know, um, I mean, hell, he even did the uh, the New York uh, matte shot. Um, he did the matte painting from for Escape from New York. For that film, um, he did a lot of stuff in the early 80s before he got to Terminator, and he filled in production design roles, special effects roles. So, yeah, he learned a lot of – I mean, when you're shooting special effects, you will have a DP for those miniature shots and those special effects matte paintings. But, man, dude, I'm sure on a low-budget fucking Roger Corman movie, they're probably not hiring a DP for your fucking miniatures. Well, think about it from no. the DP's point of view, though. Like, you, you've been working in this system where you show up, you decide how you're going to light it, and now you have this young buck telling you what he yeah. wants it to look like. Well, especially someone like Dick Bush who had done lots and lots and lots of fucking movies before, you know, Aliens. I can say, as a director, having a good relationship with your DP is amazing. That's one of the most important film uh, relationships that you, that you have there on the set, man. You, that's got to be tight. Yeah, when you reach that point where you can talk in shorthand, good to go. Start giving hand signals. Start pointing at your eyes, your ears, and then doing all these crazy moves. And people are just like, what, what the fuck are those two or doing? You or just, you just throw like a movie reference out, and you're like, um, let me in. Got it. <laughs> Adrian Bibble. I don't think he had ever actually... Um, worked on a feature film prior to Aliens. No, Aliens was his first all he had ever done was commercials and stuff before that. I don't know, man. I think the guy done a pretty damn good job because, I mean, like, I'm a stickler for a beautifully shot and beautifully lit movie. Well, this is one, dude. Uh, Adrian Bibble did a great job, and unfortunately, he is no longer with us. He passed away about 11 years ago. I think his last movie was V for Vendetta. Which, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that movie, but that film is fucking beautiful. Like, you cannot, you can't talk it shit is. about how it looks. It's a gorgeous movie. Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, well, uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to play the trailer for Aliens. We're going to come back. We're going to spoil the hell out of this movie. If you haven't seen it, get out from the rock you have been living under and watch this film's ASAP, guys. Uh, we'll be back. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Yeah. Item E! Yeah! yeah. Item E! Yeah! yeah. Item E! Yeah. Yeah. Item E! Get down the die! Get on the ready line! Keep 
talk to me, Hudson. Uh, I got signals. I got readings in front and behind. There's nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving and it ain't us. Get me out of there. We're back. We're talking James Cameron's Aliens. So I gotta ask you guys a question. What is the title card supposed to be? With the the lines and everything? Like it is cool, but I, I just I never got it. It often reminded me of the the cover of the remake of The Fly. Yeah, I can kind of see that, but it's just I don't know. I, don't know. I just always assumed it was like a cool little light effect. I- I never really thought much past that, actually. <laughs> it's just like, it's like, one of those... Huh, how'd they make that? It's just one of those things where I'm like, what is that supposed to be? You know? Like, what... what? Why can't it just be a cool light effect to reveal the title? I don't know, it just seems like it... In a sci-fi way. It seems like there's some kind of purpose to it, like how it comes on screen. I've just never been able to 100% like uh, identify what, what exactly it is. It's just one of those things I've always questioned every time I've seen it. Oh, hold on. We got a. I think we Benson f- might have found a, uh, a theory here on the uh, on the opening title card, and it is from Slash Film. I'm never less than fascinated by the development, especially in the context of the core motherhood theme. The idea emerges right in the title screen when the eye in Aliens emits light in a graphic designer's minimalistic representation of celestial birth. Alien was characterized by H.R. Geiger's gooey vaginal visions, and the title card promises a blinding counter-argument. Then the second shot of Ripley's sleeping profile fades into a shot of Earth, defining the heroine as Gia Earth Mother and establishing the motherhood theme within minutes. That still doesn't explain like the lines. Well, in the very beginning that before the really title? Deep. Yeah, it does. It's a graphic designer's minimalist vision of celestial life. No, but that that's for the eye. <laughs> I was, I, I, you just got to stop right after minimalistic <laughs> vision. <laughs> <laughs> James Cameron was like, you know, I just... We I have like other letters. And... Let's bring those in, too. <laughs> I do like how the S comes up last. That's cool. But uh, all right, okay. So well, there you go. We'll we'll uh, see if we can. Uh, we'll put a link to that uh, article in the show notes for you guys to read. Much as I like the overall look of this movie and the sets, some of the the wider shots feel very dated. Yeah, and, and you know that's that's not a. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the station model shot either. I don't even think it's a model shot. I think it's a matte painting with some models comped into it. It looks like it. But I, I do like her wake up, her dream sequence, and this motif that they continue kind of throughout like the movie or up until like the first uh, chest burst scene happens. I, man, I love that Sigourney Weaver. Like she's constantly holding her chest. 
for the 57 years, was she dreaming about this fucking alien attacking her? In hyperspeed? Do you dream in cryosleep? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. They don't ever address it. I just assume your brain is frozen, so you're just in a... Gone. Well, the only reason I even brought it up is because that that line at the end of the movie where Newt's like, are we going to dream all the way home? By the way, this this movie totally made me, like, untrust Paul Reiser for some reason. Like... Everything I see that guy in, uh, I think you're uh, sneaking these up to no good. But it, it, that goes right back to Cameron's use of, like, I don't want to say generic characters, but familiar-type characters. He is the sleazy well, I mean, businessman that is will put your life yeah. at risk for the buck. You, know, you, don't have to, you don't have to explain that character to someone. No, because he you worked, just present it. He works for the dick company in the first movie that told right. you that the whole Nostromo crew yeah, is he's already, expendable. Yeah, he's already yeah. a super All you have man. to do is say, I work for the company, and you're like, yeah. oh, I don't trust this motherfucker. Maybe Paul Reiser did do other films. I just can't remember any of them or haven't seen any other films that he was in. But the only thing I remember Paul Reiser from was Aliens and that Mad About You. I actually, Mad About You. I actually kind of like that show. Yeah, I, there was another one he was in uh, at the same time with like like my two dads or something like that, where like him and this other dad were like raising some teen girl, and it was like, oh look at the look at the trouble these two dads are getting into raising a daughter. Ooh. If they only had a woman, <laughs> <laughs> and he's such a greedy like yes man that he's not even. And it's like he almost seems like he's not even afraid of the the xenomorphs. The whole movie he's spying us. Well, he does a great job of playing that I'm lying to you. Oh, no, we're not going to bring any of them back. You know, it's like the first scene. He's just like, yeah, from an unusual long hypersleep. He almost plays it like that sleazy politician that's just going to tell you whatever you want to hear. Yeah, you've been out there for 57 years. And she's like, what? He's like... Oh, shit, nobody told you this. I got to do it. Fuck me. Oh, this is such a pain in my ass. (laughs) But he's playing it both like he's concerned about her, but his under... Like, that's the great greatness of what the way his performance is portrayed is, like, he's got that layer of, I'm concerned about you, but then there's that under layer that you can totally get. He's like, oh, man, do I got to do this? (sighs) When they get ready to prepare for uh, the hearing... And Ripley wants to know about her daughter. And he's like, look, we need to focus on the yeah. hearing. We need to do this. And Ripley's like, "No, m- look, uh, I want to know what the fuck happened to my kid. You're Refresh that my now. memory. Where was her kid? Because I don't remember it being in the first one. Her kid was on Earth. Okay. Because remember, they, they take those yeah. big hypersleep, right. and she's like on that oil refinery. And she's, it's got that really painful line that I think really nails it home where she's like, I was going to be home for her 11th birthday. Right. Could you imagine? Paul Rises is like. I mean, yeah, could you imagine so waking up and being and find out that you've lost fifty-seven years of your life? I mean, that's, that's that's some people's lifetime. Some people don't get to live the fifty-seven I mean, years. Honestly, though, I did like the dated money value. Look at it from our perspective, please. Please. Now you freely admit to detonating the engines of and thereby destroying an M-Class Starfreighter, a rather expensive piece of hardware. Forty-two million in adjusted dollars. That's minus payload, of course. Nowadays it would have been a, that's oh, a yeah. three trillion dollar ship. 
Because I remember hearing it going, that's really low. Man, that ship, they, they don't build them <laughs> like they used to. They just make them out of cardboard That's now. like a romantic comedy budget. <laughs> okay, but... Oh, shit, they're just built in Taiwan. It's all good. This is, this is something I've always wanted to... I've had lots of conversations about this, just in the continuity of the Alien franchise, and we're talking about this being a direct sequel. In the first movie, the company, the the Nostromo gets a signal from a planet right, and communicates it back to the company. The company tells the Nostromo to set down on there. Right. They're not 100% sure why. When they set down, they get this alien, and the company wants it for their bioweapons division. Right. Well, in this movie, they go and they have a meeting with the company – it seems like the company just doesn't even believe that they just throw Ripley under the bus. Now, do they throw Ripley under the they bus totally just because they're pissed? They don't have the alien, and they're just like, "Well, just fuck it. We'll just sweep this whole incident you know, under the rug." I, see, I always took it as there are people at the company that know about it, but the board of directors doesn't know about it, and they want to keep it from the board of directors basically say Ripley you're full of crap is that they don't want this knowledge getting out they want to bring it back and secretly test it so that they have it and nobody else knows about it well they throw her under the bus really hardcore we're going to take your job and everything we're going to take your livelihood from you yeah see I always took it as that there are certain people that they believe her but they're never going to admit it because they want that bio weapons secret and it seems like Paul Reiser's character is acting independent. It almost, it almost kind of seems like Paul Reiser's character is is kind of circumventing the company, even so he can get this and personally sell it to the bioweapons division to make money. And see, I always saw it different. I always you saw know? it as that his mission was to go get it and bring it back without anyone outside of bioweapons and the head of the company knowing. I always thought the head guy, you know, like the, the president, I always thought he was kind of in on something just because of the remark that, like, he makes to Ripley after the meeting is over with. See, I never, I, I could never get a read on it. I couldn't tell if it was cover up or if it's because it's been 57 years. Did all the executives that gave that order, did they just fucking die? Hey, there would be records of it. I, I know, but like. I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like anybody cares. It doesn't seem like anybody actually believes anything she says. And Paul Reiser's character is the one that goes out and sends these people, these colonists on LV-426 to the derelict spaceship from the first alien. You know, so it's like, I don't know. It's just so vague. I mean, I don't, I don't think it matters how you read it. It's just an interesting thing I've always, I've always wondered about. That they were going to use, you know, Newt and her basically to house the the huggers or to house the the um basically use them as incubators for the xenomorphs until they got back to earth when sigourney weaver like lays down his plan like later in the movie you know and she's just like yeah she's he's gonna put embryos in us and then sabotage your freezers and jettison your bodies pretty much just telling like Newton and I were going to be fine, but we're going to be pregnated with Alien. He was going to dump the rest of you motherfuckers out in outer space while you were sleeping. Yeah. I was like, how did she figure that out? I know, right? It's like, damn, girl. Because she's Ripley. That's how. She's Ripley. She's just making that up so the army will go after that guy. (laughs) 
And I mean, he he like totally tries to play that shit off. Like, no, no, she doesn't know what she's talking about. They had they had specimens though. They had specimens of the face huggers. So once again, why was there such denial in this meeting that they had with Ripley earlier in the movie? No one believed her, but there was obvious specimens on the fucking colony. Well, they didn't know that at the time. Do you mean the whole time that these colonists had these specimens, no one, no one transmitted any information back to to Daddy Corporation? No, that's the reason they go after is because they lost contact with the colony. Yeah. You know, they've actually, they were studying the xenomorphs. So if they were studying them... Well, yeah, because they were getting attacked by them. But it's it's only been two weeks. but But also, too, I believe that Part of the colony was there to study the xenomorphs. No, no, they didn't know they were there. That could. That I think there were. Well I think there too. were people in the colony that knew they were there. No, they didn't know they were there because that's why Paul, they say it in the movie. Paul Reiser sends them out there, and there's that deleted scene. Where the guy that he ends up sending out there. Look, my conspiracy theory mind says <laughs> the company knew. <laughs> They didn't want to announce it, so they sent a colony basically to get killed. But inside this colony is embedded scientists to find and study these things. They could have had they could have had some alter, you know, like the whole reason they they sent them out there in the first place is like, hey, maybe damn you right, guys will be damn right. be infected. No, I could see that. I could see where you're going with that. You got you got to look at it from Big Brother bad business company mindset. I really kind of like this um this complete hive mentality or almost like this insect-like mentality to the xenomorph for aliens you know they're kind of gathering them all in this one little area so they can you know you know and put embryos in their bodies i kind of really think that high quality is really cool i wonder if that was inspired insects like bees when did it come out like 1983 it came out in 83 i think so it was early 80s. Yeah, it's a 1986, so it I came out the you. same year this movie did. Man, 80, dude, 86 was a fucking good year, bro, just for everything almost, I feel like. You know, in the book, they've, he's, they've got the, all the bodies hanging in the web. and. Yeah, well, I don't know, because that's a leftover idea from the director's cut of Alien. Um, the, In the director's cut of Alien, there's a scene where a, a, a Ripley finds Dallas, and the alien has cocooned him, and Dallas is actually turning into the facehugger egg. Oh, really? Yeah, yep. so it, once you watch the alien's director's cut, like, aliens kind of doesn't make any sense because the life cycle's different. <laughs> but they cut that out, so just watch the theatrical cut. You'll be fine. You won't be uh, confused or anything. But no, I'm with you, Paul. I do like the fact that they make the aliens animals like my biggest complaint with the first alien technical wise uh not story or anything like that but just technical execution wise is that the alien looks like a man in the suit outside of the one scene with um yeah uh harry dean stanton when he gets killed mm-hmm. uh outside of that man the alien just looks like a man in the suit like you can tell and this movie the aliens don't look like men in suits, man. They are crawling all over the walls. They're crawling there on is, the ceilings. There is one shot where one crawls screen right to left that you can kind of tell. but Yeah, I mean, there's some moments in there, but 
I love the shot when they're in the other shot. They're in the like tomb room or whatever you want to call it, the egg room, where they're all in the reactor. That one is like right over the shoulder. Peels out of the. It looks yeah. like he almost like peels himself from the wall. Yeah, and attacks that one chick. Yeah, I love yeah, that I shot. Love that oh, shot. you're talking like uh, that, that one chick. She's like, they, maybe they don't show up on infrared at all. And it just comes right out from behind. Yeah. Like it's in the shot. You and don't even like, see it. Like, yeah, I like everything they did with the aliens in this. Like the the life cycle, the nest. Um, As the a queen, kid, what did it. you think of the queen? Oh, dude, that was the coolest thing ever. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think there's ever been a, another monster that's ever been put on film that's as cool as that. I, I think that takes everything, dude. Like the egg sack, that's the like, throne that she fucking has when you first see her, <laughs> man. Like her fucking, just her helmet, her crown. And when her head pops out of it for the first time. Yeah, I was going to say that crown that she has, man. Not only that, but I also love that mon- kind of montage scene where, where Ripley is like, you know what, I'm going to go save Newt. And she just like, she just like kind of fandangles that gun. She like MacGyvers that bastard into her own special gun. There's two weapon montages in this movie because Ripley is so badass. She doesn't get one. She gets two. She gets two. Yeah, she gets one on the Sulaco dropship, and then she gets a second yep. one in the elevator. And this is why Sigourney Weaver got nominated for Best Actress. You look at her fucking face when she is in that elevator getting ready. But there's also that one scene, and I mean, just the when Apone and the, and the rest of the Marines go into that reactor core, and when that one girl who's still alive is like on the wall, and Ripley starts to see the alien busts out of her chest that that fear and and stress and like just utter shock on her face and like she you can see her face starting to tear up and everything else it's like that moment you you know you it almost you feel what she's feeling well no you know what she's going through you you saw it in the first movie you know you know what's going to happen in this scene if you've seen the first one when i first saw this now i did not know what was going to happen um and that's one thing I will say that I'm glad James Cameron did do. James Cameron's very smart. That's why he put the dream sequence of the chest burst before you get the actual chest burst scene. If you hadn't seen this movie, you need that. We get introduced to the Marines at this point and um, the Sulaco, which looks like a giant gun of a ship. I think that's a really interesting design for a ship. I mean, I love that the way that looks. This shit is so militarized, we even have to make our ship look like one gigantic-ass weapon. You know, this is where I, I feel like Cameron right here is playing a little bit of homage to the first alien where he goes through the ship and you get these slow shots of machines doing their thing. I like that. And then we get to the, the cryo tubes. And if you look real closely, I don't want to ruin the movie for anyone, but if you look real closely at the end of the cryo tubes, you can see a mirror is clearly there and they are repeating those cryo tubes because they only had like money to build like, I think, six of them. Because they came in like sets of two, how they build them. So they built like three units for six people, and they just used a mirror. And if you actually watch the the sequence with them waking up, when they go to the dolly shot toward the end, they don't have the mirror up, and you can actually see the wall back there where it stops. In the previous shot, it looks different. So I don't want to ruin it for the movie for you, but if you if you look at it, it's, it's kind of a cool filmmaking technique thing that they did there. Save on some money. And they used, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, they used old helicopter engines as the uh, motors 
for the cryos. Yeah, they did. They sure did. I mean, Peter Lamont does a did a, did a really great job designing all these sets, man. He he did good. I like immediately how Sigourney Weaver is is put on the outskirts from the rest of everyone else. Like all all these colonial marines all have a nice they they all get along, you know? They all have a nice camaraderie together. Well, I mean, she's the outcast and that automatically sets it up to be even harder when she starts having to bark orders. Man, they 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 show her like no respect whatsoever, like zero. That's what these colonial marines do. They they like go from planet to planet to uh, to kill off hostile species. Man, if you pause it, if you if you have a Blu-ray of this, and I highly recommend getting the Blu-ray, you can barely see that little that little like sticker they have on the, the side of the dropship. You can't see it very much, but it's like it says "Bug Stomper," and the slogan on the side is uh, "We endanger species." <laughs> That's cool. I guess we should talk about the introduction of the power loader. Yeah, they 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 slip that in nice, neatly. I mean, dude. I mean, we were talking about the alien being cool. This power loader is pretty cool too. I mean, that's they actually built that. That's Sigourney Weaver in the power loader. It actually works. It's hosted up on cables, and there is a really big guy hidden behind her, doing all the uh, all the movement and the puppeteering with the legs and the arms. And and it's still. I mean, it's still watching it. You know, now it still looks just as amazing as it did when I was a kid and saw it. I think one of my favorite sequences is when, when you know, the Marines do go down into that reactor. You know, you got Paul Reiser and then you got um, the other military dude, the guy that's supposed to actually be leading the group. None of them actually realize that what's going to happen if they're in a fucking reactor core and they start shooting their guns off. And then all of a sudden Ripley's like, well, you know, they're using live ammunition down there. Basically, they shoot this shit, they're going to create a nuclear explosion. Yeah, I mean, they, that's why they tell them to switch over to flamethrowers. Or, or you know, to they can't uh, use shotguns. pulse rifles down there. Ripley gives them the speech about, like, what you're up against, and they sort of, if I see it, I can kill it. They're dismissing her. She's watching the video, mm. and she's the one adding the tension because she knows what they are. I mean, I think I think half the group, over half the group, ends up getting taken out in that one scene right there. Oh yeah, no, it's I think it's more than half because, like, I mean, not many come back. Yeah, like three. Um, you have Hudson, Hicks, and Vasquez are the only three that make it back out of that entire or- ordeal. When that uh, when they're getting ready to leave though, like after they get like after all those marine guys get wiped out, like and they they finally get back in the tank and they start closing the door, dude. That one that comes in that Hicks like shotguns in the face and he says, "Eat this, dude." That, yeah, that puppet yeah. looks great. Yeah, well, I also like the scene where you know they were in the eight piece and they're calling for like their evac, you know, evac. You know, it's like they have this this brief moment of hope where they're like, yeah, we're going to get off this rock, you know. And then all of a sudden you see the you don't even see the pilot chick get killed. You just see blood just splatter all over the da- the cluster, you know, and then you just see the ship start to wobble. And then you get this oh shit look from all of them. And then everybody just starts running that 
And it almost gives you this total feeling like, well, you guys are really totally screwed now. Like, Yeah, they just lost their entire way off the planet. And at this point, you're now you're putting them into a situation where they have to wait, uh, what is it, like four or six weeks in order to be rescued. Now they have to survive that. Um, and, you know, yeah. another thing about that, uh, the drop ship exploding, um, that's when you see the ship and it's it's wrecking. That is actually a separate element that was shot as a model that is projected on a screen that has some of the set in front of it with the actors. So that's how they're able to get that shot in there with these actors running away from the crash, and it's all done in all done in camera. Um, he used that a lot on Terminator. Um, if you go back and look at the beginning of Terminator Two, that's that entire first scene. Um, that takes place in the future. He did it almost exactly the same way um, throughout, and uh, he he does yeah. it a couple times in Terminator, like when the the truck is blowing up at the very end uh, when they throw the the bomb in and blow up Arnold Schwarzenegger. There's a shot where you see Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean coming together, and the truck blows up in the background. That's all. That's all front screen projection. You know, a character I think we've we've sort of overlooked is the uh, the android. Mr. Uh, Hendrix himself from Puppethead. I mean, Pumpkinhead. Pumpkinhead. I mean, he totally redeems androids for Ripley. She kind of acts really fucked up towards him in this movie. She doesn't trust him. But you can see why. You know, seeing he definitely does get that redemption at the end of the movie. You know, another thing. uh, uh, Sorry, I had to leave, but the platform was shaking. I still. That, that looks really good is when him him and Hicks are flying the ship around at the end and they go through that corridor where all the lightning is. That dropship looks a lot better than the dropship in the beginning of the movie when they're dropping down on the planet. Well, while we're talking about that, that part of the movie, let's talk about the genius of Cameron giving you a countdown when you have to leave the planet. Oh my gosh. Let's well, add yeah. more tension to the chase where the queen is chasing her. Well, I mean, it's not, a, it, 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 they start, he starts it yeah, so much earlier, man. More well, yeah, he is, he's a genius in how he sets this up because he sets it up in such a way where it starts off where, yes, you just got your ass kicked. You, you lose your fucking ship. So you can't go out. So you have to stay there to be rescued. And then, you see, no, your- you can't stay there. You have to leave because we're counting down to nuclear annihilation. Yeah. Exactly. When that, hey, that's very, that's very beautiful, Bishop. Yeah. But what are we looking at? Oh, here goes the em- emergency exhaust. The planet's gonna blow up in four fucking hours. Not four days. Four fucking hours. So you guys thought it was bad. Now think quick. <laughs> Be heroes of the movie. Damn it. Uh, now it's getting now. It's- Things just got worse. Yeah, well, the la- like you look at this movie, the last hour is is four hours for these characters. But that's what I mean. It goes back to what we were talking yeah. about. James Cameron makes you root for the the good guys. He makes the good guys become heroes. Yeah, yeah. I mean this. Now this is when we I like to say like everyone likes to use the really cliche term of a roller coaster ride. Oh, this is a roller coaster. This is a roller coaster. Motherfucker, you don't know what that means until you've seen this movie because at this point in time, this movie is a roller coaster ride. This is the definition of excitement. Once it starts that downward motion and there it, it's just it's going. Well, it goes and but then it it keeps those moments where you can still get scared. 
Yeah. It keeps these really suspenseful moments and these – it's got these little – you know, it's got these little uphill battles where you're going to go up the hill again before you get dropped off. And Bishop is going to go out and, and get our ship. So we're like, okay, this is cool. He's going to go get the ship. That's awesome. This is great. Everything's going as planned. How do they cut the power? They're animals, man. The aliens come in, dude, and th- oh, it's so great. I love this scene. When you're when you're thinking about like you've seen the first one, yeah, and now you're into this theatrical version, and they're in the little egg room, the hatchery, yeah, the nursery, the nest, whatever. And he looks it. down at his little radar GPS thing, and he says, "There's movement," and you see that shot of all that movement. <laughs> That is just such a great, like, You're fucked. difference between, in the first one, there was one. In this one, look at this. <laughs> it's such a little promise Cameron gives you of, look how much trouble I put these people in. When Hicks <laughs> gets finally up in the rafters, and I, I love it, too, because they're like, you're not reading it right. It can't, that thing can't be. It can't be, like, six meters inside. That's inside the room. That's impossible. There are no aliens here. What are you talking about? That moment where they're all like, oh, fuck oh, and when he me. picks that grade up. Yeah, and they go look in the ceiling. And he just sees all those aliens. <laughs> Hell yeah. Dude, Michael Bean's reaction to that, I I, oh, I laugh every time. Because he just, he looks at it and just starts shooting and screaming right away. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, what would you do, though, if you saw that? Like, like, oh, God, dude, this, it's terrifying. You would probably, I, I would like, probably or have or the exact same reaction. I think all three of us would shit our pants and start screaming like little girls is what I think. Yeah, I'd be dead. I'd be dead in two seconds. I would probably shoot till I I would probably shoot till I had no more ammunition. See, I think like the best trained Navy SEAL in the world would react like Hicks did when they see all those aliens. Us little normal people we would just shit our pants and start screaming like little little kids and and die. I don't know if I'd even be able to scream. I'd probably just stand there and die. Like, I think there would be a moment of fight or flight. Your natural instincts would kick in and be like, look, either I'm going to fight for my life or I'm just going to try to get the fuck out of here. Oh, you're forgetting about the third option. There's fight, flight, or stay there and do nothing. (laughs) And that's what I would do. Yeah, I just think, like, your brain would go into such a a (laughs) moment of just, I don't understand what I'm seeing. You definitely did, homie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I I think I think we'd all be dead. Yeah, you'd be one of the people. Yeah, you'd probably be one of the people. The best thing you can do is just go ahead and stick your head between your legs and kiss your ass goodbye. The room's covered in red. They had the emergency lighting. It comes on. Fucking Hudson gets killed, dude. And that is when he gets dragged away. That 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 actually kind of scared me, man. When I was a kid, I'm not gonna lie. There's something about that being like I don't know, being taken away to be eaten later. Is very or impregnated. Yeah. Then eaten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just disturbing, you know? Just like a spider. Exactly, right? Um, but yeah, th- I mean, this scene's cool. I- Burke's death is awesome. I love that. He finally gets his comeuppance, that little fucking snot-nosed <laughs> weasel son of a bitch. Company I, man. But hell, even when he's dying, he's a jackass. <laughs> like, he's locking them yeah, out, and he he's totally is a it's just like, ah. And it's because he's a jackass that he ends up dying. <laughs> Credit to Cameron's writing. That, that is, is definitely that one of the more He satis- gives you those characters where you're just like, I want to see that dude get it. 
Yeah, you definitely want to see him. Yes, it's a very satisfying moment when he opens it and he he doesn't realize that aliens there and he just opens that door. I mean, Cameron just oh, writes scripts. It, it is screenwriting one hundred and one. Yeah, because you know, like it's, a lot of people well, may have just, just written like, it to uh, where okay, the aliens are the bad guys and all the humans are the good guys. But no, he gives you that one dude that you just want to see get it. Like I didn't really care for him too much. Like the guy that was leading the mission, the the corporal or whatever, the colonel. I didn't really care for him too much. But see, you I know, felt sorry. For he him. kind of redeemed himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I he's just did an too, experience. Like, you know, I, I felt sorry for him. He he doesn't have and any he does experience. Redeem himself. And he's trying to do the right thing. He just doesn't know what to do. Yeah, and he's in this and he's in this yeah. position of authority, so he has to act like he knows what to do, and then. When he realizes mistakes, he's like, do this, and he's trying to do the right thing. I do love it the next time you see him, though. Like, after he gets uh, that concussion, and you see him again, and, like, it's right after, like, Ripley got uh, pulse rifle training by Hicks. And she's just walking into the hall with this fucking huge-ass yeah. pulse rifle. It's like, fucking small-ass little Sigourney Weaver with this big-ass gun. He pops out, and he's just like, hey, uh, hey, uh, Ripley. Uh, and she's like, oh, don't forget it. It just walks on. <laughs> Think about this. I, I just thought about this, but that iconic image of either a dude or a chick with a big gun with that kind of walk. That, James Cameron invented that. Yeah, I mean it's in I mean, it's in Terminator. Yeah, it's in Rambo Part Two, <laughs> and it's in it's in Aliens. <sighs> yeah, it is. I mean, Vasquez, like, you know, Vasquez, that, that big-ass fucking gun she has. That exaggerated 80s military look. You know, before you had, like, dirty hair. Yeah. Or you had that realism look. And then Terminator comes around, you got this robot that can hold a Gatlin gun. See, I, I love that scene in Terminator when he goes in and wipes out the entire cops. Oh, if he had not done that oh, scene, the police station scene, yeah, when he goes in there and he just takes out all the cops in there to get Sarah Connor, I feel like if Cameron hadn't done this that scene in Terminator, I'd be back. Yeah, right. Ah, oh, dude, it's so fucking good, man. I felt like if he hadn't have directed that scene, the scene where it turns red and aliens and the aliens attack this compound here, the uh, in medic, I feel like this scene would not be what it is today if he had not done that. Like that was his. I feel like that was his test run. But you can for uh, aliens. That's kind of what I'm saying. Is you know like, what I mean? You can see that visual progression. Yeah. Where he's like, he, you know, in Terminator, he's like, All right, I'm gonna have him holding this kind of gun and holding it up like this. And then in Aliens, he's like, I'm gonna invent these bigger guns. <laughs> yeah, no. By the time he gets to Terminator Two, the motherfucker's just got it down, dude. He just knows how to do that shit by that point. And you it's know? just those visuals of that one person with the big well, gun. You, you. Oh, so great. I think I would probably put Terminator 1 in my top 20. I'm saying my favorite top 20. Terminator. I like Terminator. Aliens and Terminator 2. I can see anybody arguing that those movies being in the in the top 20 of anything. I would totally sit down and listen to that argument. Yeah. I would. In fact, I encourage that argument. I mean, I love Terminator. I mean, just like, I mean, I love Terminator. Terminator is an awesome movie. But I think what really got me with Terminator 2 was was... I guess my age at the time and then just seeing it and be like, how cool would it be, you know, to have like basically a virtually indestructible Android bodyguard? How cool would that be? You know, 
Dude, I tell you what. A couple months after seeing this on VHS, you know what I saw in the theater? Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Fucking came out in 91. That shit blew my fucking mind. <sighs> I like Terminator 1 better. I do. Too. Well, I like I like I like it better in terms of a movie, but I just There res- is a lot of sentimental like I dude, I respect Terminator 2 so much. And I loved the hype before it came out. Like it was oh my fucking God, dude. Ever, like the cups from the stores and it was just like Fuck yeah, dude. I remember dude, I remember the Sharp TV commercials. And I I wanted a Sharp TV just because they had the Terminator 2 trailer <laughs> within their TV logo. You know, like I remember that. Like it's just oh, these are things that've been grained in my brain that <laughs> lost to time. You know, I oh, I that being said, I well, dude, you know I, I still, still think have, Aliens uh, is, under- is my favorite James Cameron movie. Really? Yeah, it's my it's probably my favorite. I know this is totally all subject I actually had some of those Aliens action figures, and I had two. I still have the Terminators. They're like the two, maybe six-inch tall Terminators, the ones where they have like the two holes in the top of their heads to where if you could put them, you put them underneath the light, and their eyes would glow red and shit. I'm holding in my hand right now an original Alien from 1991. You can squeeze the back, and the, the tongue even comes out. We all love cinema, right? Uh, yeah. I think that kind of goes to the the nostalgia factor a little bit is to like Terminator will probably always be yeah, my favorite James Cameron movie. It affected me in a way that personally it it it, it just changed the way I saw movies. I can see that. And for you it's probably going to be Aliens because yeah. probably the same thing happened. Yeah, well, I mean so it just yeah, I'm just saying yeah, it goes it to the power yeah. of like how a movie can change the way you it can affect your life in such a interesting way. Yeah, I mean, dude, I'm not gonna lie to you. I got a lot of I got a I lot of like, flack in uh, film school for we were watching. Uh, I forget what the Stanley Kubrick film we were watching, but we were watching Stanley Kubrick and we were talking Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you talk Stanley Kubrick, you're always like, oh, we don't ever have anybody great like that. And I, I mean, I would always argue that, oh no, we do. It's James Cameron. James Cameron is the modern day Stanley Kubrick. Maybe not in terms of storytelling techniques, but in terms of his attitude towards filmmaking. Getting it the way he wants it. Getting it the way he wants it, and like if they don't exist, hey, I'll just fucking invent it, bro. Yeah, I made a comment in film film class that kind of got me. And I like, I mean, I love Kubrick films. But, oh no, Kubrick's a master. No, um, no question. I'm not. I'm not arguing that. I did make the comment of, well, shit. You give anybody 150 takes, I'm sure it'll get better. If you can't get it right in 150 takes, fuck. Yeah, yeah, but he got it really right in those 150 though. Like it was, it was so right that people were like, "Yeah, this is this is better than most people's 150 takes." You know, I I feel like that's James Cameron. He's like, uh, he's just the action. He's the movie action. He's equivalent. the popcorn Kubrick. Yeah, he is the popcorn Kubrick. That's a that's a that. Thank you, Benson. That is a perfect way to describe it. We, sh- we should name the, the episode Aliens Popcorn, Popcorn Kubrick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, oh, just do those facehugger scenes, man. Like, uh, when when the facehuggers are are released in that room with Newton Ripley, watching them move from, from frame to frame. And, you know, when we were talking about Gerlin Woods and we were talking about digital compositing, that's another thing I would like to bring up on Gerlin Woods. There's that scene... Um, and Gerlin Woods, if you watch it, uh, Juliet Reeves. Which you, you should. Yes, you should. 
where Julia Reeves gets her hand. Um, I guess that's okay to, to spoil, right? She gets she gets her hand yeah, hurt. Right. Yeah, she gets it punctured by a a branch on a tree. Um, and how how we one of the how we accomplish that effect is just the same way that James Cameron accomplished a lot of these effects with these face huggers, and that's reverse the footage. That's a technique that's still used in films to this day. That's so simple that, I mean, it's just easy. You know, I mean, these these tricks work for a reason. You know, I mean, you look at Mad Max Fury Road, dude. After watching that for like, I don't know. Are you gonna watch the black and white version? Uh, yeah, when it comes out, yeah. Looks yeah. pretty cool, doesn't it? Yeah, I you know, I hope it comes out in 4K. But um, yeah, I, but th- that film uses so many so many techniques from Aliens. You know, the sped up footage. There's a lot of sped up footage. You look at the the tank thing running through the halls, you know, like that's that's a sped up version of the that. hand. The... Yeah, Lance Hendrickson doing the knife trick. That's sped up, you know. Like some of them are very obvious, but some of them aren't. But like, at the same time, it's like it's not obvious the first time you're watching it. When you're into the movie, yeah, that's true. Like that's Cameron's talent. Is there's a Spielberg has a saying on Jaws where he says, "If I have you for two hours, I can make you believe anything for the last two minutes." <clears throat> Which is why the shark comes up in the last two minutes a lot and blows up. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, the writer was like, "Nobody's going to believe that you can shoot a compressed air thing, and the shark's going to have it in his mouth, and it's going to blow up." And Spielberg turned to him and said, "If I have them for two hours, I can make them believe whatever I want for the last two minutes." They never killed that shark better in any of the other sequels. So no, yeah, I think that's the best way. Son of a, but it's the same premise of. If you suck somebody into the story, you can get away with a lot of trickery. The chase sequence. We didn't go into how it goes into the ducks. Yeah. And if if you look at that, I really like, and going back to trickery, James Cameron's taking those alien suits, and the, the aliens look like they're just coming from all over the walls. And they're just crawling, like kind of however, like how their arms are stretched out. Like they have no sense of which way is up or down. Right. Like, I'm just crawling down this tunnel. It doesn't matter what's up, what's down, what's left, what's right. And they, they back like the shit out of it. Right. And it's more of a feeling than it is an actual effect. Very spider-like. You know what? That's probably why I like The Queen so much. Because I grew up on Godzilla movies, and when I saw The Queen, it wasn't Godzilla. You know, it's like, I, I know when it's a man in a suit. And when when I saw The Queen, I just did not know how that was done. What the Fuck. How did that happen, dude? How did they make that shit look real? Are you kidding me? It's how, it's an hydraulic thing. I mean, really, at the end of the day, what we're talking about is it's good effects. It's good lighting. It's good camera work. Good planning. It's better editing. Ray Lovejoy, the guy that cut the very first Batman movie, the Tim Burton Batman film. This guy this guy is a classic, is that dude. technically the first Batman movie? But they're an Adam West Batman movie. Hmm... And do you call it a movie if it shows on TV? It says Batman the movie. <sighs> they are called TV movies. Would you call Duel a movie? Oh, that's different though. They got, cause they got they actually got a theatrical release <clears throat> in Europe. Um, <laughs> so Salem's Lot. <laughs> do you like how I tried to throw? That? <laughs> Just gonna <clears throat> cough that up under there. Oh my gosh, man. Actually, let's just talk about the whole the Queen and and Ripley battle, power loader versus alien. Oh, you can totally 
see the back thinking on that of, okay, we've got this giant egg. How are we going to have Ripley fight it? And then somebody, it'd be cool if she could fight it with her. What if she had a suit? Well, we need to make up a reason for the suit. What if it's a loader? What I like most about it is that this movie came out in the 80s, so I kind of feel like, I don't know, I, I, I kind of hope that James Cameron's just sitting by the television watching Transformers when it comes on. He's like, oh, there we go! <laughs> I'm going to do something like that. It'd be a Mac, though. It'd be with a person in it. Oh, yeah! Now that I do have one, the, the one problem I have with the movie is when they open the space hatch in space and they live. You know, if they held on, if they were able to hold on, I mean, you could live. That's 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 viable, right? No. That's not? No. Oh, man, what's wrong with that logic, dude? But we'll, 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 I've always told myself that they're close enough to the planet atmosphere uh, that's that true. it's not a total vacuum. Um, no, it's a total vacuum. You can see that. I mean, that's the whole point of why the queen dies at the end. Like, they have this big fucking confrontation between power loader and queen alien and yeah i mean that's what happens that's the end of the movie queen gets sucked out into space you can't live it's a vacuum or sucked down to the planet's gravity <laughs> if you got them for two hours you can make them believe anything in the last two minutes well, i mean dude the fact that they fucking shot this though i mean come on man sigourney weaver going against a giant puppet like that sounds fucking stupid <laughs> Are you not? I mean, come on. I mean, how did a studio greenlight this? They were like, but you so what's going to happen? When you're watching the movie and you first see her get into that suit, you just, you get the feeling, I want to see her fight in that. Fuck yeah, you do. That's <laughs> it's a, like yes. Cameron just taps into the kid and everybody, I want to see her fight in that. <laughs> and dude, like, you know what the sad thing is? But you're like, not expecting her to have to fight something as big as it. <laughs> exactly right. And then that door fucking opens up and she fucking steps out in that thing. Get away from her, you bitch! Which is the best line in the movie. Hands down, the one. I mean, oh, God. In the power loader versus queen alien battle, one thing I think is really cool is that, yeah, they had this practical queen built that they made. Two puppeteers were inside this. That's all CGI. You know, you... Shut up. Oh, my God, I'm going to kill you. Come on. It's a big conspiracy. James Cameron invented CGI for aliens and just didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell anybody. And then, like, when he made Terminator 2, he was like, all right, fucking cat's out of the bag. I got to tell everyone. Here's the the technology I've been working on. I used it in the abyss. But, I mean, it's awesome. This this alien is on a crane. The crane is right behind her the entire time. Which is a very underrated James Cameron movie, by the way. What's that? The abyss. Oh, I I don't. I, you think that's underrated? I hear a lot of people don't like that movie. Really? I love that movie. That's a shame, dude. I would say that's it's one of those magical like. I mean, outside of Terminator and Aliens, like I would say that's his next his next one, right? I mean, for me, it is. I mean, like a lot of people go to Avatar. I'd put Avatar after Abyss, Titanic. I'd put I'd put that after that too. True Lies. True Lies is my least favorite James Cameron movie. Mine too. Yeah. I, I like it a lot. I, it's funny and it's very enjoyable to watch, but it is my least favorite. But w- one thing I do really like about this, um, the alien and the power loader fight, is all the different techniques that they used in order to accomplish it because they didn't have CGI. This power loader is pretty cool too. I mean, that's they actually built that. That's Sigourney Weaver in the power loader. It actually works. It's hosted up on cables. 
and there is a really big guy hidden behind her doing all the uh, all the movement and the puppeteering with the legs and the arms. Yeah, they had to use models. They had to use stop motion. All of it had to be planned out. Well in advance because these things were all shot at different times with right. different units. And, I mean, dude, can you imagine doing that? Like where you're designing the same object on different scales? Because you're, you're basically – you're building the fight one movement at a time. Then you need those wide shots with the fucking the miniatures, you know, stop motion. Well, I, I don't know if they actually use stop motion. I think they actually just took wouldn't you wouldn't you miniatures. love to be able to go back in time to the the production meeting where they're looking at the storyboards and they're going, okay, we're going to do this with this, we're going to do this. You need to shoot this practical. I do. I I think one of the best shots in the entire movie is when. Um, she gets the queen. She's got it by the neck, and she's getting ready to jump it in the locker. She's getting ready to let it go, and it just grabs her. Right. And I love that shot where the power loader comes down the fucking air shaft with her. Yeah, that's so great, man. And she gets trapped in the bottom of the but that, airlock. But again, that's Cameron. He's constantly up in the stakes in this. Yeah. I mean, you look at the editing there. There's like fucking four cuts just in like a second. You know, this thing, just to show it fall. Because you're showing so much information. You have a love for it. We, I do have a love for it. This is how I learned to make movies, dude. It was watching this movie so many times and trying to figure out how it was made. And watching this film with the sound off, it's just such – it's so important to me. I, I can't I, I can't say how monumental this film is enough. Of all the films that we've covered, I feel like so far this has been the most important. For you? I feel like this has just been the most important period. <laughs> but Vince, for me, I mean, yes, This absolutely. is the most important film ever made. I mean, how can it not be the most important we've it, talked about? It's it's one of them. I mean, you know, like I don't I don't talk well, about my posters back, a lot, but I have the poster up for this in my house. I but, mean, this is that's that how goes, important well, it is. Well, that goes right back to what I was saying earlier about how you know, for people that love film, when when you see a film for the first time that that changes the way you you think about things, it has a dramatic effect on your life and the way you think and the way you... It changes who you are, man. Yeah. I mean, like I said, for me, it was Jaws. When I saw Jaws, I was like, that's just the most amazing thing in the world. Like, I was able to pick everything up. I was able to figure out most most of the things with Jaws. But but see, for me, it it was more than just technically. Like, sure, you okay, they had a fake shark and they did this and the hydro... But to me, it was like how Spielberg wove these characters into the story, and you 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 believe them; they're real people, and you just love them. And at the same time, it's scary, and it's it's every genre: it's horror, it's action, it's adventure, it's comedy. The storytelling in Jaws is what caught me, not the technical, just the storytelling in general. See, yeah, I didn't appreciate uh, storytelling until I was I was much older. Um, I, you know, probably until I was way into double digits. I want to say I was like thirteen, but it was probably wasn't until wasn't until I was like fourteen or fifteen until I really started appreciating what exactly the this the story was doing and what writers were doing with characters and how they were building structure. See, for me, it was the exact opposite. It wasn't until I was older that I started really breaking down like, okay, that shot is this. This is technically, okay, they did this. That, you know, that's, that's what we talk about all the time. That's the difference between you and me. It's like, to me, it's like stories, like stories, every part of any kind of storytelling, 
Like I am not like I'm not interested in storytelling. I'm interested in film. Like right. I like movies. Like I yeah, like I enjoy books. I can read a book. Yes, I know how to read. It's awesome. It's great. I've seen I've seen you read. Yeah, a couple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I I enjoy reading. It's awesome. It's great. Uh it's just not how I prefer to consume a story. Right. When somebody told me that the I remember I would think I think it was uh I was I was 12 and somebody was talking to me about uh how how films were just projected onto a screen. Mhm. And they were like, oh, no, see, what you're seeing is a bunch of still pictures. I'm like, what? No, I'm not. <laughs> that's moving on screen. What are you talking about? And they're like, no, no, see, but you're, that's how your eye perceives it. And this, they started talking to me about persistence of vision and how your eye does this. And I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on. How there's this black moment in between each one. And Oh, my God. The whole thing's a fucking illusion, man. <laughs> Film's an illusion, bro. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh, my God. They just blew my mind into this whole different, like, Oh, bro, it's the red pill or the blue pill. I don't know, man. I just took them both. And somebody so just told up me. Up until that moment, yeah. it was just you would go into a theater and there was just this hole in reality that opened up and you yeah. got to watch a complete different reality. Yeah, it's just like, well, I, don't, I, didn't, I never thought once about how that image was recorded. When you're a kid, you don't think about that shit. It's just you just accept it. I don't know. See, I remember like from a really like – I guess from as far back as I can remember, me and my dad sitting in the living room and him talking about, yeah, each one, it's just a bunch of still pictures. Because I remember him him explaining Jason and the Argonauts. And, you know, a movie is just a bunch of still pictures, but when you see them real fast, they, they move. And so to do the stop motion, you just take a picture of it. I guess I just, I mean, I guess just because my, my dad talked to me about it. I knew that from, I don't remember not knowing that. But I remember when I got old enough to start, like, learning techniques and then i learned about interlaced television i was like i don't understand what you're talking about it's not a frame it's it's half of a what the fuck why would you do that (laughs) you had a perfection and when it was 24 frames per second why are you doing this half frame every (laughs) right that's that's what i remember i remember being a snob about it being just like why would you do that that's so dumb who invented that (laughs) you're a fucking idiot (laughs) It's like your math doesn't even work. You have to drop one every now and then. <laughs> and I remember my boss at the time, like, he was trying to explain, like, what's well, because of the power grid and the way. I'm like, no, it doesn't matter. It's stupid. They should have rethought it. <laughs> I mean, like, part of that's, like, also the magic of cinema. Right. Is well, well, t- the two movies we're talking about, Aliens and Jaws. Those are two movies that while you're watching it, one of them makes you believe a 25-foot great white shark jumps up onto a boat to sink it. Totally unbelievable. Poor while point. you're watching it, by God, I don't care what people say. Bruce looks real while you're watching it. It had doll's eyes. Black eyes. Aliens. While you're watching it, man, you believe that these things are crawling through these tunnels and this queen is about to... It, it just sucks you in. It's the magic of cinema. A good team came together, and they made a good vision happen. Being the guy that has been ahead of a set, and I'm sure Cameron would say the same thing, having a good team makes a huge difference. Because you're relying on that team. Dude, I, I don't know. I feel like if James Cameron could fire everybody on a film set and hire clones of himself, he would do that in a heartbeat. Well, there was that interview with him not too long ago, and he's, one of the things he said was surround yourself with good people. All right, look, hey, we like Star Wars. James Cameron, he didn't really like Star Wars. Uh, uh, episode 7. 
Which is, I find this interesting because he has openly said when asked, what is your formula for writing a good movie? He says, I copy Star Wars. I kind of wish we had Pat on right now so we could do round two of Rocky Balboa. Oh, dude. Uh, you know what? You got some flack for that. I did. You got some flack for that, dude. A lot of people were really mad that you, you were not in my corner backing me up because they were like, wait. Benson liked fucking episode seven more than you did. Why was he not backing you up? I was, he should have been having that argument with Pat, and you should have been the fucking I referee. I was playing referee, because you guys got into it. <laughs> Our audience was definitely like, no, 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 you should have been referee, and Benson should have been having that <laughs> argument with fucking Pat. That's bullshit. Well, if if the audience wants to know the, the, behind, the after story, I did have that argument with Pat. <laughs> I think they, Two they days, felt cheated, though. Two days later, got on the phone with Pat and totally had the argument. See, and I got him to concede a little bit. All right, look, see, guys, look, it did happen. All right, it did take place. You just don't, you just don't get to hear it. So, well, it was just, I mean, you know, in my defense for not taking up for you, which was hard because there were certain times you made extremely good points, and I wanted to be like the whole like, yeah, bitch, what about that? But. <laughs> Yeah, being the go. being the unbiased ref, um, I had to let y'all both make points, and <sighs> and you know if you try to step back and be unbiased, I can understand what he was saying. I just don't, I don't agree with that train of thought. Yeah, I'm not going to say he's wrong. I'm just saying I don't agree with it. No, we. I mean, we actually got a bunch of great emails, like people pointing out that, like, oh, you know, like he he was just actually arguing what you were talking about on the podcast and it's like oh well you know look in my defense i have been able to see it a couple more times and live <laughs> with it a little bit more than mr patrick cox who's only seen it once at that point so, right you know i mean to be fair to him that's his one viewing reaction my first viewing reaction and, was and, not that great either and so. lord knows like i have gone to see movies that people are talking about this is the greatest movie ever and i'm walking out going i don't get it like other than the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards, I don't like that movie. I get crap all the time of people going, "No, that's the greatest movie ever," and I'm like, "Not." Opening scene's awesome, but after that, it loses me. Fucking Cameron, dude! Imagine him doing a Star Wars. Oh my god, that would be so fucking badass! Like if they announced he's going to do Episode Nine. Oh, dude! I would fucking they, juice they would my pants. push the date back like twelve years. <laughs> Stephen King has a book on on writing where he's basically talking about the craft of writing. And in it, he brings up, like, he writes every day, tries to get done a book a year. Um, Sometimes he does two a year, and he'll put one aside. And he said that, you know, like, some writers, like Thomas Harris, have ten years in between books. And he stops and goes, what the fuck do you do with your time? (laughs) Well, I mean, Cameron goes on, like, these adventures and build shit to go oh, look at the Titanic. <laughs> I don't know, man. He, he, he beats to a different drum, and uh, I don't understand uh, what he thinks because I'm not as smart as he is. I think he, he spends a lot of time planning his movies. Yeah, he spends a lot of time planning his movies, yeah. Oh, my God, dude. I just realized we went through this whole fucking podcast, and we haven't mentioned the fact that Stan Lee uh, – Stan Lee – Stan Winston – did all these amazing fucking effects. Stan Winston brought us the Terminator. Yes. 
He's brought us, you know, aliens. The Predator. The Predator. Uh, pretty much every iconic. Pumpkinhead? Yeah. Uh, shit. I mean, fucking. I love Pumpkinhead. I would love to remake that movie. I am so sorry he passed away. He gave us so many great movie monsters. And, you know, and honestly, we have talked about him. We just didn't mention his name because we've talked about how awesome the aliens looked. We've talked about how That's awesome true. the queen is. That's true. All of that is because of Stan Winston. And he is completely responsible for how all the alien drones look and the design for those. Um, him and James Cameron work together very closely. I think they have pro- they probably had one of the best working relationships, I think, in Hollywood with he James talks, Cameron. He talks about that in that interview I just saw. Oh, really? Yeah. He talks about Stan Winston being a badass? Yeah, and, and just how... Like their how their relationship worked and how they would toss ideas back and forth. You you get people that that complain about Avatar not being an original story. If you sort of if you look at Aliens, the idea of just strictly story, yeah, it's basically not an original story. Marines go in, some bad shit happens, people die. It's what James Cameron does with it. It's what he does with those characters and how you relate to them and what the movie looks like that makes it become this like extra extraordinary event that while you're watching it, that's the power of cinema that can go past like other, in my opinion, it goes past other forms of storytelling is that you can transcend just the story and it becomes, it becomes this, this event. Like you'll hear a lot of like uh, filmmakers or young, young writers that are, They'll they'll fight against simplicity, and Cameron makes simplicity art. The lady asked him about the importance of the screenplay, and he said, well, basically, when I'm writing a screenplay, there's a lot of work that goes into it, but it's basically just a blueprint for all the amazing artists on the movie to go to work. How I think about special effects, how I see shots, how I see edits happen, it's all due to this film. This is the one movie that taught me filmmaking from the ground up i'll go back to any anybody that's wanting to be a writer who has dismissed james cameron's writing needs to go back and rewatch his movies because is his dialogue a little stiff sometimes yes are his plots real complicated no but you know what it works it does he presents a simple story that's easy to process and then get you to enjoy it. That's what cinema is. There's uh, a prequel coming out. There is a prequel coming out. Now, Alien Covenant is coming out pretty soon. That's a sequel. It's a sequel to Prometheus, supposedly. So says Ridley Scott. I thought Alien Covenant was the Alien 5 that's going to wreck, retcon 3 and 4. Well, they actually have... See, this is where it's kind of confusing because uh, Scorny Weaver is signed on to do Neil Blomkamp's, uh, the guy that did Chappie, District 9. When he was doing Chappie, which also stars Sigourney Weaver, he was talking about uh, getting another Alien movie done. Okay, yeah. Alien but I haven't heard Covenant. anything about that for about a year. Okay, yeah, you're right. Alien Covenant is the Ridley Scott prequel, so I'm wrong about that. No, it's not a prequel. It's 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 just, it should be a sequel to Prometheus, right? Yeah, but it's an alien prequel. Did I say Prometheus prequel? No, you did say alien prequel, but that's still kind of confusing because Prometheus was also an alien prequel. Well, what, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. 
Well, he's making a trilogy. Come on. Uh, what did you think of Prometheus, dude? Let's just go ahead and get it out of the open. What did you think of that movie? I thought the movie tackled some very interesting subject matter. And once it started trying to become an alien prequel, it got completely convoluted and wrecks itself. It seems to me that's that, how I feel too. It seems to me that the the director wanted to make one movie, the yep. a movie about where life on Earth came from, and the producers wanted to make an alien prequel. And to make that work, they just kind of train wreck some shit in together trying to make both movies and make everybody happy just sort of train wreck the script okay so through the magic of editing here we're just going to break in the show uh paul had to leave for a second in the middle of the show uh we lost his connection he dropped out uh but we got him back here for the end <laughs> we weren't just ignoring paul the entire time <laughs> But I'm back now. I'm back. We've had some connection issues tonight. You know, it happens. Technical difficulties. Yeah, Aliens, man. Overall, Aliens is an amazing, amazing sci-fi action film. It has influenced so many other movies like... I mean, even movies like Starship Troopers. Um, I see a lot of influence in Starship Troopers. Even certain video games. Um I've seen a lot of influence from aliens. Like I said, you know, earlier about Benson, and you said it yourself, Brian, and I'd have to agree that this movie is a total roller coaster ride from beginning to end. And I personally, as I've said, like the special edition because there's a lot more stuff added, but I still love the theatrical version. It's just an awesome movie and it was probably one of the quintessential movies from my childhood benson let's get your thoughts what are your thoughts on aliens bro people don't give the movie enough credit for the the visuals that spilled over hell you can watch sci-fi today with the sci-fi channel and asylum is going to make a movie and within that movie you will see something that came from aliens not to mention video games and... Oh, like, most just, video games are straight up some for the visuals of I, Aliens. I can't believe how many... Like, video games own everything to Aliens in my book. I mean, just, like, it's insane. It, it visually changed the way we saw sci-fi action looking. Yeah. And I don't uh, want any cinephile that's going to email and say... <sighs> The supporting cast are all generic. This is... Oh, come on. This is not meant... This is a... Fun action movie. The story is tight. The entertainment's tight. The acting's tight. And the filmmakers take you from point A to point Z in the most entertaining way possible. Dude, I look, you look at the aliens on on screen today. The aliens in this movie, they still look good. They still look great. The queen looks good. The regular drone aliens look good. Fucking that queen looks more real than most shit you see nowadays. I know, man. Everything looks so. And great. just the design alone is just so iconic. Guys, this is such. From a that great moment movie. when the moment when her tongue comes out, at that moment there is an image embedded in your brain forever. This is one of the best movies ever made. I'm not talking about sci-fi. I'm not talking about horror. I'm talking about this is one of the best movies ever made, 
period. It's End a game story. changer. Exactly. It is. All right, guys. So that's going to do it for us tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you guys want to get in touch with us, our email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. That's themoviecrew. Crew is spelled C-R-E-W-E, extra E at the end, at gmail.com. Uh, we are on Facebook. We're on Twitter, at MovieCrewPod. Um, and guys, please, if you can, uh, give us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher. We would really appreciate that. That help people, uh, that, well, that help other people find out about the show. Um, you can find me at, at J. Edward Benson. And we would highly appreciate it if you um, went on iTunes, Dish, DirecTV, Comcast, whatever your preferred way of viewing excellent VOD streaming content and give our movie Girl in Woods a watch. Shoot us an email. Let us know what you think. Um, and we are, we do have the Deadly Blessings um, uh, poster giveaway still going on, but it, it looks like we're just not going to get to 43 emails. Uh, <laughs> I don't, it, it looks like 43 people don't want that poster, man. It would seem to be that way, man. I'm going to have you pick a number here on this show right now. Pick a number between 1 and 32. 17. All right, so I'll go back through my emails, and uh, whoever the 17th person that emailed us, that wanted that poster, you got it. Um, So check your email. I will be sending the 17th person that emailed us uh, that poster, so you'll get that in. Yeah, we're going to be giving away the slipcover and the poster for the deluxe edition of John Carpenter's The Thing, which we will be covering sometimes in September. Oh, it's uh, it's the slipcover and the poster from Scream Factory. So, you know. Yeah, from Scream Factory. And it, it, it's, it is sold out now. You know, they only had 1,500 copies, and they're gone. Or maybe it was uh, maybe it was 25. Maybe it was 2,500 copies. But they're gone. Regardless, if you guys listen to the show, you know we love what Screen Factory does, and they do a lot of really, really great remasters and and stuff like that for for great horror movies. And the thing will be uh, supervised by Dean Cundy, so you know, hey, it it's a, it should be a new nice transfer. You know, maybe we're gonna see the thing in a whole new way. We'll pop it in and be like, oh my god, I didn't know what I was ever missing. This is amazing. Yeah, I'm actually really excited for it myself. All right, Paul, so tell these fine people what they're going to be listening to tonight. You know what? Before we do, I don't know if we said uh, enough great things about Mr. James Horner, but he is no longer with us. Take a minute. Appreciate the man's work here just a little bit. Um, We're going to leave you with with some of this. So, Paul, tell them what they're going to be listening to from the Alien soundtrack. Track 17, Bishop's Countdown, from the Deluxe Aliens soundtrack. Enjoy.
Welcome back. <clears throat> Sorry. I don't know, bro. What? What? You, you, you got all kinds of wildlife going on. What? What the fuck is that shit? <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. I can't do that in the bed. Shut up, crickets. <laughs>